Let me encourage you, go ahead and take out your Bibles. Uh, if you would, turn with me uh, to Luke chapter 18. And again, I don't care if you've got that on your phone. You're not going to offend me one bit if you pull out your phone and pull it up there. However you turn to God's Word, you do that. And as you're getting settled, turning to Luke 18, I want to start with a story today. And I heard this from another preacher, and I'm not afraid of borrowing a good story from another preacher, all right? And so I heard this from one, to, and uh, I think it fits well with where we're headed today. Uh, because it's a story of a man who uh, was a salesman for a dog food company, all right? And so this man, as he was a salesman, he, he made his way up through the organization until he finally was the lead salesman for the company, all right? And so the company that he worked for, you'll want to keep this in mind, is Kennel Ration, all right? You got that? The dog food company is what? Counteration, right? You got that. So he worked his way up, became the lead salesman, and so that they were at their annual meetings, their annual sales meeting, and so he's got all the other salesmen standing before him, and he says, what dog food company makes the best dog food in the nation? And they all said, Counteration. That's right. Well, so then he had one more question for her. He looked back at all the salesmen, then he said this, well, then how come we don't sell more dog food than all the other dog companies? went quiet for a while. Nobody wanted to say anything. And then one brave salesman in the corner of the room stood up and he said, well, well, sir, quite frankly, the dogs don't like it. <laughs> All right. Well, we laugh at that, right? But let's think about it when it comes to church. We clearly have the best message there is. We offer to the world a hope that can be found nowhere else. Yet statistics tells us that more than 64% of 18 to 29-year-olds who grew up in church drop out of church, and that most churches are either plateaued or declining. Now, why is that the case? Because let's be honest, the people don't like it. Now, why is that the case? Again, because ultimately, unfortunately, the world needs a genuine example of what faith is and what they often get from the church is something much different. They often get religion and never find a genuine relationship with Jesus Christ. And because people never find a genuine faith, they drop out of church, or because they don't see a genuine faith on display, they never join in the first place. Therefore, it is very important for we in the church to understand what faith really is. For I believe when people understand genuine faith, lives are changed, and others take notice, and they want the same. I ask you to turn in your Bibles to Luke 18. And so as we look at our focal passage of Scripture today, what we're going to see in this text is a comparison and a contrast. We're going to see a person who thinks they know what faith is, but in reality has no clue. Then we will see a person who more than likely has a difficult time believing that he can have a faith that is acceptable to God, but in the end really has it figured out much more than the other man. One thing that is interesting right before the verses that we're going to look at today is that Jesus asked a question. And look what he asked in verse 8 here in Luke 18. He said, nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? An interesting question, especially as we seek to finish the phrase, faith is. Jesus knew people struggle with having genuine faith. And I don't think Jesus thought there would be no faith upon the earth. But at the same time, I do believe he wanted people to wrestle with whether they have faith or not. Because so many people say they have faith when they don't really have a genuine faith. 
Maybe, just maybe, it is because they don't know what faith really is. And maybe they have never seen a true example of faith. And so, as we try to understand genuine faith, let's look at this comparison that Jesus gave. We're going to read through the text, and then we're going to come back and walk through it very slowly. And then we're going to see what we need to know for our lives. Look at what he says beginning in verse 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing afar off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, immediately in the text, we see Jesus addressing a problem. It says he was addressing those who thought themselves righteous as as a result of their own self-effort. And they subsequently looked down on others who did not meet their standards. In other words, Jesus was addressing people who thought that they knew what faith was, but were off base in their understanding. They really didn't know what faith was at at all. To address this issue, we're introduced to two different people. Both are people who went up to the temple. And surely that we understand that going up to the temple meant they were going to worship God. Maybe we could say this. They were going to express their faith because worship is a part of an expression of faith, or at least it should be. And so we have these two people going to the temple supposedly to worship God, and therefore we should see what faith looks like. Well, the first person we are introduced to isn't given a name. We are just told that he is a a Pharisee. Now, let me remind you or inform you, if you don't already know, that this meant that he was a religious leader of the day. He had been thoroughly trained in the scriptures. He should have known God's commandments through and through and should have been a person that others looked up to when it came to what it meant to have faith. Maybe we would think something like this. Maybe we think seminary professor or maybe seminary president, all right? Someone who should be well-studied in the scriptures, who should be able to teach others the truth of scriptures, and somebody that we would look up to as somebody who lives a high standard. Someone, again, that we would expect to live a life that we would admire. Now, if seminary president doesn't ring true to you, maybe think this. Maybe think large church pastor, all right? Someone who you would think would have an exceptional communicating skills of God's word and that have a large influence and a person of strong faith. Whatever resonates with you, hopefully you understand a Pharisee was a big influencer in religious circles. Someone we would assume who understands what faith is. Well, then we have the other man. Like the first, he is not named. But he's described as a tax collector. Now, no doubt for most, even in our day, when we hear the term tax collector, it doesn't give us good vibes, does it? It doesn't. No no one really likes paying taxes, even if they understand the need. And everyone who is required to fill out a tax return understands the fear of being audited, right? Even if you think, I've done everything right, I shouldn't have You still worry, right? Surely, you know, you have this fear of maybe, you know, the government's going to come and tell me that I did something wrong. And so when you hear tax collector, it brings us fear. However, tax collector in Jesus's day, hear me, had an even worse connotation. Tax collector meant crook. It meant even traitor. To the Jew, the tax collectors were those who were in cahoots with the Roman government. That was bad because the Roman government was an unwelcomed occupier of the land. And they had the Jewish people subjected to their reign. Therefore, tax collectors in Jewish thought worked for 
the enemy. And on top of that, tax collectors were known to charge extra taxes and then pocket the difference for themselves. They would give to the Roman government what was due them, but then keep the rest for their own self-advancement to line their pockets, we would say. So they were seen as dishonest and, like I said a few moments ago, crooks. Crooks stealing from the common people. If we were to try to relate to the way people would feel about tax collectors in Jesus' day, maybe we could think this. Maybe we could think mafia boss or drug dealer. All right, Clearly, we would see either of those as despicable, dishonest, and ruthless people. That is how Jews would have felt about tax collectors. And so this is the kind of man who stood in the temple that day alongside the Pharisee. Now, here is what is very clear. The expectations about the two different characters in this story that Jesus told were greatly different. One would have been expected to be admired. The other we would have expected to condemn. We would expect Jesus to speak positively about one and negatively about the other. But let's take a closer look at each of these people. And we're going to look at them through the lens of the prayers that they offered up to God. Let's start with the Pharisee. Look at the first part of his prayer in verse 11. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. As we look at this Pharisee's prayer, we first need to notice that he was standing by himself. And let's be honest, if you are doing a casual reading of this text, are you going to pay any attention to the fact that he's standing by himself? Probably not, right? You're just gonna read right past that. But here's what you need to see in the context of his prayer. Him standing by himself was a statement in itself. He believed that he was too good to be standing with others. This act was a statement that was saying, I'm better than others and I do not associate with them. Spiritually, he truly believed he was better. He believed, in fact, that he was far superior to others. We see this attitude in his prayer. The first part of his prayer being, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. He looks at his life and he declares himself right with God because of all the things that he does not do. At least the thing that he doesn't do in comparison to other people. He even has his own list. He says, I'm glad I'm not an extortioner. He's glad he's not unjust. He's glad he's not an adulterer. I'm glad he's not all those things either. However, we see specifically that what he's doing here is he's undertaking a comparison game when he continues in his prayer and he goes on to say, I am glad I'm not like this tax collector. Now, I want to ask you a couple of questions at this moment. First, if you're praying to God, why are you worried about who else is there? You shouldn't be, should you? I mean, you should be talking to God. It shouldn't matter who's in the room, all right? Then second, what arrogance does it take in the middle of a prayer to claim yourself better than someone else who is standing in the temple, apparently there to pray as well? Think about those questions. Maybe this is a good place to point out that the Pharisee starts his prayer with God, but everything else is I, all right? When your prayer, your total prayer should be consumed with focusing up on God, the Pharisee one time says God, and everything else in his prayer is I. That's all the Pharisee knows is I, I, I. Now, for me, that is enough to turn me off from this Pharisee, but we cannot move on from the Pharisee yet because this is not the end of his prayer. He began by being proud of all the things that he is not, but he moves to praise himself for all the things that he is. Look at again in verse 12. He says, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Notice again the eyes. This Pharisee was boasting in his prayer about all the things that he had done from fasting to giving his tithes. Now, let me be quick to say this. 
It is a good thing that the Pharisee was trying to honor God in these ways. Nothing wrong with fasting and praying. God wants us to do these things. But clearly, folks, we don't need to brag to God about what we do because God already knows. And can I ask you this question? All right. When does God's word ever tell us in our prayers to brag to him about all of our accomplishments? When? I know this is I read my Bible. I don't see it. However, we see this Pharisee clearly be proud of what he has done, thinking that all his acts of religion have made him right with God. Now, having quickly looked at the Pharisee, let's look a moment at the other man. Remember, I said we'd see a contrast. And we look at this other man, it should be clear that there's a huge difference in the two. Look at the tax collector's prayer again. Verse 13. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. From the very start of this tax collector's prayer, we see a contrast. It says here that he was standing far off. This description is interesting, but it's telling. The fact that this tax collector stood far off was a statement of how he perceived his spiritual condition. He believed that he was so unworthy to come before God that he couldn't even come close there in the temple. It might be like the person who sneaks into the back of the church and sits in the back seat because he doesn't think he deserves to be in church. Maybe he's looking at the roof to see, is the roof going to cave in? Because he's fearful because of his life that just walking into church, the building's going to collapse. Y'all ever known anybody like that? Not, not only that, maybe this is the person, when you look, it's like the tax collector because notice the tax collector, it said not only stood far off, but wouldn't even lift his eyes up to heaven. Again, this is that person that I've seen him come in church before. You try to engage them. You try to say hi and they take a moment and they look you in the eye. But very quickly, where do the eyes go next? Right back to the floor. And I've seen this as a preacher many times before. That same person throughout the service will sit there in the service and never look up, their eyes often on the floor. And you wonder what's going through their mind right now. But those folks often come because they feel, they feel so worthless that they don't even belong in this place. And there's no way they could lift their eyes up to God because they feel helpless and worthless before God. This tax collector felt so unworthy before God, again, that he kept his eyes down. Who knows? Think about this. He may not have even known that the Pharisee was there because his focus wasn't on others, but on his current need. Let's also take note that as he prayed, this tax collector beat his breast. What's that all about? I can tell you what it's not. It's not like Tarzan who goes, oh, you know what I'm talking about, right? When Tarzan does that, he's very confident, right? Because really in that moment, he's confident because he knows victory's coming. Maybe he's calling in the animals to save or whatever, but he knows victory's coming. If you ever watch the old Tarzan shows, every time that's what's coming next, right? So he's standing there with confidence, beating his chest. But that's not what it was for this tax collector. The beating of the chest represented remorse. It was like an act of grief. It is the same as what happens in Luke 23. After the crowds watch Jesus die upon the cross, there's a moment that the scripture records that they recognize that an innocent man has been crucified. And so what the scripture record is that the people leave beating their breasts because they're in agony understanding that an innocent man has died. There is deep grief. There is a great sorrow because a wrong has been committed. You see, this tax collector entered the temple that day with a clear understanding that he had done wrong, that he was a sinner before God, and he was beating his breast in sorrow. With this understanding of a sin, the tax collector's prayer was then very simple. He said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. This tax collector had no declaration of his righteousness. 
This tax collector didn't look at his life and compare it to others. This tax collector simply cried out to God for mercy. Now, let's pause for a moment, okay? Remembering that Jesus here spoke to a mostly Jewish audience. At this point, if Jesus had stopped, right? Just pretend like you haven't read the next verse. If Jesus had stopped right here and he'd asked the crowd, which one of these men are righteous? Who do you think the crowd would have said? Who would they have said? Pharisees. Absolutely. They would have looked back and they said, well, obviously the Pharisee is the one who is righteous. He's the righteous one. I mean, he's lived a moral life. I mean, he hasn't committed adultery. He hasn't been an extortioner. He's been, he hasn't been unjust. He's been an all-around moral person. And then on top of that, he fasts and he ties. This man is obedient to God. Then they would have looked at the tax collector and said, well, he better cry for mercy. With a life that he has lived, I mean, he's a crook. He's a traitor. He's an all-around despicable guy. He better cry out to mercy for God. Those Jesus was speaking to would have had no problem declaring the Pharisee righteous and the tax collector unrighteous. Now, keep that in mind as we read the next verse. Because Jesus, again, he has just described the tax collector's actions and he follows what the tax collector did with these words. I tell you, this man, pointing to the tax collector, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The crowd, hear me, the crowd would have been stunned to hear Jesus declare the tax collector righteous rather than the Pharisee. But what Jesus knew is the one, that one of these men had real faith and the other didn't. And the one who was righteous was not the one who was righteous in his own eyes, but instead the one who was righteous in the eyes of God, the one who had a real faith. So let's ask ourselves this question. What does this passage teach us about real faith? I mean, does it show us what faith is? This passage at least shows us a piece of what faith is. And it starts by demonstrating to us two things that faith isn't. All right, let's, let's start right there. First of all, faith isn't comparing. So often we are just like this Pharisee. We base whether we are righteous before God, whether we have faith or not, by comparing ourselves to others. And we feel like as long as we are better than the other person, then we are okay. Now, in case you don't think that you compare, I'm going to give you a simple example that came to my mind this week. And I hope it resonates with you because we're comparing all the time, are we not? All right, I'm going to show you a picture. It's like a, one of these, uh, these window clings on a, on, a, a, on a car. And so if you saw this as you were driving down the road, what would you immediately think about the person driving? What would you think? They're Christian. Man, they love Jesus, right? Because they put it on their window and it says, Jesus basically is my heartbeat, right? And you look and say, man, I'm not even, I'm not even strong enough to put something like that on my window. Why did I do that, Right? What about if we saw this next bumper sticker? If you're driving down the road, what do you think when you see this one? Let's just be honest. If you're a Christian and you know what this is all about, you're probably looking at that driver and you begin to think, oh, there's an atheist driving that car. Right? There's an atheist. I mean, they just want us to coexist. I mean, they don't, they don't care anything about God. And here's what some of you do. You'll speed up. Whichever one you see, you'll speed up. You're going to speed up, first of all, to see, all right, who's that good Christian with the sticker? Or you might say, who's that person I need to pray for? Or who's that person I need to, that, that I need to avoid? Because they might be going to the same place as me, and I don't want to be anywhere around them, right? 
If you say here today, you don't compare, we do it all the time. Who knows, folks? Either one of those people may have just bought that. It could have been a used car and they just haven't had time to take the sticker off. But we judge all the time. We compare. In fact, again, my guess is if you've looked at a car with a bumper sticker and thought to yourself sometime in the past, you've thought to yourself, I'm glad I'm not like that person. All right, let's understand something today. Faith is not a comparison game. All right, it is not a comparison game. In fact, let's ask this question. What if it was a comparison game? What if it was? Well, let me tell you, if faith was a comparison game, we would all lose because we're all in the same boat. In Romans 3, Paul addressed this because the Jews felt they were superior to the Gentiles. And so he wrote this to them. He said, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Folks, it doesn't get any clearer than that when we consider how to compare to others. If we play a comparison game, let me tell you the way that it turns out is that we all are alike and no one is righteous. In fact, let's do a little mental exercise. You can do it whether you're here with us today or whether you're watching online. I want you to do a little mental exercise. Let's, let's pretend you're walking through all these chairs here in the sanctuary. You know what you can do this morning with everybody here? You can walk to each person and say this, I'm just like you. 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 We could walk up to every person and say that. And I know what some of you are thinking. I know who's sitting on the other side. I'm not like them. Yes, you are. We are all today, the scripture says, unrighteous. There's not a one of us righteousness on our own. In fact, let me do this. We could carry this out a little further after church today if we want. Maybe we can go down to the prison and we can ask the jailer, hey, can we walk through the halls of the jail? And if you walk through the halls of the jail and you could go by cell after cell, you know what you could do? You could point to each prisoner and you could do this. I am just like you. 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 Now, I know some of you want to balk at that and say, that's not true. But let me go ahead and say, you are no different. On your own, you are unrighteous. No one is righteous. No, not one. And so if we want to compare, you're not going to win. Especially when you understand the standard because in 1 Peter 3, it says this, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Not some of it, all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Folks, the standard of who we are to be like is God and his holiness. And when the one you are comparing yourself to is God who is perfectly holy, surely you understand that you come up short. And if you don't understand that, please tell me afterwards so I can pray for you. Just know faith is not a comparison game. Just because you may think you're better than someone else does not mean you have faith and that they don't. Because that's not all. Because faith also isn't religion. You know, most people who get involved in church end up with this idea that righteousness is based upon a list of things that you do. And so if you do enough good religious things, then you have faith and are righteous before God. In fact, I, I remember when I was young and attending church, we used to have these personalized offering envelopes. Do y'all remember those? I had to dig a little bit, but I found a copy of one, all right? Put, go ahead and put it on the screen if you would, go. These offering envelopes, do y'all remember those? This wasn't just a place for you to put your name and your offering. Look at what it had in the middle. 
right? It had a place for you to check all the things that you did. Did I attend this week? Check. On time, yes. Brought my Bible, yes. My offering, yes. Prepared my lesson. I'm going to attend preaching. I, I, I have to check all these things off to make sure that I do them, right? It, it's like if I check my list, am I 100% Christian this week or 80% or 90% or 50%? What percent Christian am I this week? And we began to get this, even as a kid, I remembered it. And what it built in us is this idea is, look, if I do all the right things, if I get it right and I score 100%, then I'm right before God. Well, let me ask you, if we check all those, are we right before God? Do do I have faith if I check those? I'm going to make a confession today. You know what this offering envelope did for me as a kid? Are you you ready? It, it, It was an instrument to prove my unrighteousness. Why? Because they became another thing for me to lie about. Because even at an early age, when we learn a comparison game, we get this impression that righteousness is about how well we performed all our religious acts. Therefore, I often lied on my offering envelope to keep the appearance of righteousness because I had to be religious. And I thought it made me right. Now, I know I am the only one who ever did that as a kid. I get it, okay? I know I'm alone in that. And here to tell you, I wouldn't do that anymore. Well, I'd probably be tempted to. But anyway, all right. What I'm saying is we've done this. But the reality is religion will never save us because we can never live up. Religion, listen, can be a trap for us. If you think today that you are right before God by what you do and whether you can check all the boxes on an individual report envelope, you need to hear the words of Jesus and one of the most terrifying passages of Scripture I have ever read in my life. It's Matthew 7. Listen to what Jesus said. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. There is no clearer passage than this one to debunk the idea that religion makes you righteous. In fact, I know in my ministry, I've been judged at times as unrighteous by some based on the fact that I don't speak in tongues or I don't pray in heavenly languages or I don't read from the King James Version of the Bible or any number of religious things. The problem with that is God has never made those things or any religious markers the thing that determines whether you have faith or not or whether you are righteous. In fact, Jesus said here, there will be many people who looked righteous, who did the religious stuff, who will list their accomplishments, such as, Lord, I prophesied in your name. I cast out demons in your name. I did mighty works in your name, who Jesus will look at and say, depart from me. I never knew you. If you ever judge yourself as a person of faith based on your religious deeds or based on your judgment of someone else's faith based on their religious deeds, I want to encourage you today to stop because according to Jesus, you could be completely wrong. In fact, many who have religious deeds are hypocrites, as Jesus said to the Pharisees, like this one who stood in the temple that day, Jesus said in Matthew 23, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisees first clean the inside of the cup and plate that the outside also may be clean. I could read on, but Jesus' words to the religious leaders were, you put on a good show, but you're fake. 
We need to take warning because faith is not religion. Now, if faith is not a comparing game and faith is not religion, then what is faith? I can boldly and confidently declare this today, that faith is resting in the mercy of God. Who did Jesus declare righteous that day in the temple? The one who could only say before God, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Why? Because our only hope before God is his mercy. What what do you and I have to offer to God that can be accepted as righteousness? Nothing. Hear me, our greatest acts of righteousness are filthy rags before God. Our only hope, our only plea is God have mercy on me. And the good news is, you ready? The good news is this, that God is merciful. Listen to the words of Paul in Ephesians 2 as he spoke about our unworthiness, but then our hope that is found in Jesus. He said, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Here we are told that faith is, that we are told that faith rests on the fact that God through his mercy, all right, has provided for us a means to go from spiritual death that we experience because of our sin to the eternal life that we long for. That the means of this change is faith in Jesus, the one who was perfect, the one who was righteous, and the one who offered his life as a sacrifice in our place, the one who died on a cross to pay for our sin, then rose to conquer sin, death, hell, and the grave. Our hope is crying out to God saying, have mercy on me, and then placing your faith in Jesus. That is what gives you the gift of eternal life and provides you hope. And I have some good news for you. You ready? The hope God provides never runs short. Think about this. I've heard people say this. I don't know if you've had. People have been talking about the vaccine and they talk about it as it's the shot of hope, right? It's our hope of getting over COVID-19. Has anybody else heard that? Have you noticed there's a problem though? There's a shortage of the vaccine. Y'all have noticed that too, right? We might say, hopes and limited supply. But that's not the case with God and the hope that he brings. Because his mercy is never in short supply. Did you notice again what Paul said in Ephesians 2, 4? Look at it. But God, look at this. God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. All right? God is rich in mercy. His mercy is not in low supply. Some of you might even say, well, Brother Scott, if you knew my past, if you knew my rap sheet, if you knew my record of wrongs, you would never say that I could be righteous for God. You might say there's no way that God could forgive me. My sins are too great. Folks, listen, your sins might be great, but his mercy is more. There's a song about that. Y'all look it up this afternoon and listen to it, okay? He is rich in mercy. If you look at your life and say, it's too bad for God, you're making more of a statement about how you feel about God than you are about yourself. And I want you to know that God is rich in mercy and he is more than prepared to forgive you if you are willing to say, God, have mercy on me. All right. If you're willing to do that, be like this tax collector who stood far off because he recognized his worthiness who beat his chest because he was broken over sin, who confessed in this way his failure and then cried out for mercy. If you're willing to be like that, God is ready to forgive you and give you the gift of eternal life. 
And in case you think, well, Brother Scott, I've already done that, but then I blew it again. I cried out to God. He forgave me. I live for him, but I've made another mistake. I've got good news for you. As it says in Lamentations 3, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies are never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Think about that, folks. God's mercies are new every morning. Did you blow it yesterday? Don't raise your hand. Did you blow it? Well, God was prepared with mercy for you today. Have you blown it today? Good news for you. God is ready with his mercy, and he'll be ready when you wake up in the morning with a new, fresh batch of mercy. Amen? The question is, and always will be, will you cry out to God and ask for his mercy? If you do, you can rest in the fact that God is ready to forgive you, and not only forgive you, but also to give you a hope for the future and a new perspective for today. Because look at what Jude told Christians, who, who, was, who he is urging to stay the course. He said, but you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time, there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourself in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire so others, to others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. And others, Jude basically said, there will be those who are false, those who don't know what faith is all about, and they will cause trouble. All right, these people are in the church all the time, right? But a believer presses on. A believer keeps the faith. A believer walks with the Lord because they know that God's mercy will provide eternal life, which brings great joy and hope. And in light of this hope and joy, a true believer who is resting in the mercy of God will then extend mercy to others. We'll hear more about that in the weeks to come, all right? But today, what we need to understand is that faith is resting in the mercy of God. And so is that you today? Hear me, if you rest in the mercy of God, there will be no need for you to compare. You, you won't feel a need to look at others and say, well, at least I'm better than they are. Also, you won't feel a need to look at others and say, I can never be as good as them. Neither comparison will matter for what will matter is, have you recognized your need and cried out to God for mercy and received his mercy? Also, if you rest in the mercy of God, there will be no need to cling to religion. You will not have to wonder, am I doing enough stuff for God? Have I checked enough boxes? Have I made a passing grade when it comes to righteousness? If you will rest in the mercy of God, you will understand that Jesus is the one who has already made the grade, and he has simply taken the test for you. He passed with an A+, and he is letting you have his grade, a grade which will inspire you to live for Jesus because of mercy, not in an attempt to earn your own righteousness. Now, I don't know where you are today in your walk with God, but what I know is if you are not resting in the mercy of God, that that is where you need to start. Some of you need to come and, and just cry out to God, have mercy on me, a sinner. No fancy words, no list of what you have or haven't done. You just simply need to come to God and ask for mercy. He is ready to give you mercy today. Others, you need to come because although you've received God's mercy, you've blown it again, and you are carrying a burden of guilt Come this morning crying out to God to have mercy and experience the reality that God's mercies are new every morning. He is ready to meet you in the midst of your failure, so come today. Because if you do, you can hear Jesus say about you, this is the one who left righteous 
today. Would you pray with me? Father, as we come to you this morning, God, I have no doubt today that this is a message we all need to hear. Because, Father, we've all been caught in the comparison game. We've all been caught in the religion game. And, Father, many times what we've missed is your mercy. And so today, as we come to this time of invitation, I pray for us all that, God, we would understand that your mercy is available if we would just cry out to you today. Whether we need to cry out to mercy for the first time and receive Jesus as Savior or whether we need to cry out for mercy today because we blew it yesterday or even this morning, I pray, Father, as we come to this invitation, that, God, we would cry out for your mercy. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you, Lord, for reminding us, Lord, of the hope that we have. And I'm even thankful today that your mercy is not in short supply, but that you are rich in mercy today. So I pray some will come and receive it because you're offering if we'll just cry out. So you move during this invitation, I pray. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.